Okay, so tonight, as we continue in Revelation, we've made it to chapter 13. Today we're going to see the beast rising from the sea. But before we jump into that, there's a couple of things I want to just remind us of, right? A couple of interpretive principles that I hope we've come to understand as we're going through uh, Revelation. The first is that we're not trying to apply the visions of Revelation to modern newspaper headlines. And I've said that several times throughout the study. I want to remind us of that. That's, that's not our purpose here. I like what Richard Phillips says. He says, in studying Revelation, we constantly need to realize that we are not reading future history out of a newspaper, but we are learning the spiritual realities of our present age through a visionary prophetic picture book. It is especially necessary to stress this approach today when many Christians do not even try to understand Revelation because of the confusing teaching they have received and heard. And I say amen to that. I think it's, it, is, it is one of our folks here mentioned after one of our studies, she said, man, I grew up with this, this different view of Revelation, and I was afraid to open Revelation. I was afraid to look at Revelation. It was so confusing, charts and this and that, and I just, I just didn't want to look at it. But now I'm encouraged by Revelation. It's actually encouraging my faith. And that's what it's meant to be. I think that the, that the visions of Revelation should be as familiar to us as Christians as the parables of Jesus. I mean, the Good Samaritan and all the other parables that Jesus told, some of these things in Revelation should be just as familiar to us. Let's take, for example, what we saw last week in chapter 12, the dragon, the, the woman, and the child. That should be easily understood by Christians as the mental picture for believers. Satan, the dragon, failed to destroy Christ, the child, and he is vengefully angry at the woman, the church, and he is doing everything he can to destroy her until he will finally be destroyed by Christ the Lamb. I mean, that's a perfect, that, that's our encouragement, folks. It's, it's that simple. And so I think another thing, though, that we need to understand, another principle that we've learned, is that the symbolic visions of Revelation are not interpreted from speculation about current events, but from parallels found in the Old Testament. So that's important, right? Because when you think about it, again, if we're constantly reading Revelation, and we're trying to decipher the symbolism by what's happening today. So we're looking to current events and trying to say, what does that mean based on where we live? We're going to miss the boat. But what we need to be doing is saying, where else in Scripture do we see this symbolism? Where else in the Bible do we see it? And we will see it over and over in the Old Testament. So John readers in the first century understood the symbols as they related them to the Old Testament. And so today we're going to be reading a large portion of Daniel chapter 7 as, as a result of this idea of saying, hey, the Bible interprets the Bible for us in this. So having said that and set that up for us, let's jump into chapter 13 as we look at the beast rising out of the sea. Verses 1 and 2 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now there's several things we catch right away here. Diadems, that pictures authority, power, right? Royalty, majesty. It pictures earthly uh, empires, okay? So, so we understand that. 
But then we see these other things, right, mentioned. And again, it gets daunting. You see things that you don't see every day mentioned here. <laughs> a, a beast coming out of, the, coming out of the, the water with seven heads, di- ten diadems and cr- or crowns on his head. All these things. He looked like a leopard. He, he looked like a bear. He looked like a lion. And so all of this, what, what is this? Well, I think we need to compare it to something similar that we've already seen, and that's Daniel's vision back in Daniel chapter 7. We see similar things. So let's look at the beast of Daniel chapter 7, beginning of verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the, the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Thus the ribs, right, in its teeth. And it makes me hungry. But anyway, let's keep reading. Good ribs, you know. Um, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given it. Then verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns, again, pieces, uh, uh, symbols of authority on its head, like crowns. It goes on to say later in Daniel that it it uses the word diadems again. So there are similarities here. Again, I'm not going to try to get into everything here and say, what what is this and what is this? I I think there I am a more generalist when it comes to interpreting Revelation and Daniel and the other prophecies, and I'll show you why. But we cannot help but see similarities between these two. That's the main thing I'm trying to show us is that what we see in Revelation that John is seeing is the same thing that Daniel saw in the Old Testament. And that both of these are God's way of showing us things that are going to happen, that are happening and that are going to happen throughout redemptive history. So if we look at the similarities between Daniel and Revelation, we see the beast of Daniel has seven heads. When you count the four and the three other beasts that showed up, seven heads. And you see Revelation, the beast had seven heads. In Daniel, the beast had ten horns. In Revelation, the beast has ten horns. In Daniel, there are ten crowns. In Revelation, there are ten crowns. In Daniel, it was, it was compared to a leopard, a bear, a lion. And in Revelation, we see the leopard, the bear, and the lion. The only thing missing there is an eagle, but but again, there's such similarities here that we cannot but think, hey, there's, there's a similar purpose here. These things, they talk about each other. This is the same kind of prophecy. So the beast in Daniel's vision represented earthly empires. When Daniel goes on to ask, what do these things mean? He's told by the angel, the beasts represent earthly powers that will rise, such as the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the, the Greece, the Greek Empire, uh, the Grecians, and then finally the Romans. And so this is a picture of earthly political power. 
So, so John's vision then in Revelation emphasizes that general idea of royal power and dominion, talking about the same kind of a beast with the similar pictures of power, the diadems or the crowns upon the head, showing us again this picture of power, governmental power, political power, empires. So let's look again at Revelation 13 too. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So there it is. That's this idea of a throne, of, of authority, of political power given to this beast. And this beast, in a sense, in Revelation, is a culmination of all the things that Daniel saw in one. I like what William Hendrickson says here. He says this, the sea beast, that's the beast in Revelation, symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all the nations and governments of the world throughout all history. So I think that's what we see in Revelation, a culmination of everything that Daniel began to see. And what was God showing Daniel? That there will be nations and governments and empires rise up that are hostile. They will persecute. They will rule with, with iron fists. They will devour with their teeth. And what we see in Revelation is, again, a culmination of all of these governments and, and the, these persecuting entities throughout history. What else do we see about these things in Revelation? Well, look at verses 3 and 4 because it goes on to explain what this beast represents as far as how it does persecute and, and what it will do as far as exercising its power and authority over the earth. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So again, you have this collective adoring of the beast, this, this beast whose power and authority comes from the dragon, and everybody's worshiping, and they're saying even, well, who can stand against it? Who can fight it? Everybody worships the beast. Everybody does this. Now, here's what I, I want to talk about. There's an interesting part there at the beginning where we see this mortal wound, and then almost a resurrection in a sense, where one head seemed to be dying or, or mortally wounded, but then it's okay. And people are marveling at this miracle, this miraculous sign. And they're following even more this beast and worshiping him. Now, the thing that this is showing us, and I think what, what we need to understand throughout all of Scripture about the beast, the devil, the dragon, in the very name of Satan and the devil is the, is the idea of deception and deceiver. He's a deceiver. Satan deceives. He mimics he mimics Christ, right? So basically, in as many ways as he can, Satan will be like Christ, but not, okay? He will, he will look like Christ, but just enough to deceive. And, and, and so look at this. Some of the ways we see this in Revelation, in this beastly vision compared to Christ. Here it is. Christ was resurrected, and here we see the beast parodies a resurrection. Christ wears many diadems in Revelation chapter 19. Well, he is the king of kings, lord of lords, and on his head are many diadems. So the beast wears many diadems. Christ has a name written on him, 
says Revelation 19. So the beast has blasphemous names written on him, verse 2 of Revelation 13. Christ has people from every tribe, language, and nation, and so the beast will assume power over every people of every tribe, language, and nation. We'll see that in verse 7 of this chapter. And then Christ is worshipped together with God in Revelation chapter 7. We saw that glorious worship where Christ and, and the Father were worshipped. And so the beast is worshipped together with the dragon, as we just saw in Revelation 13, verse 4. So you see this constant comparison where, where, where Satan himself, he is jealous for the worship of God. He's jealous for the omnipotence of God, the power of God, the authority of God. He's always been jealous of that, always longed for that. So he is a deceiver and a mocker, and he mimics that, even though he doesn't have it, only what God gives him, of course. But basically, what these verses show us is that Satan is antichrist. He himself is antichrist, and his system is antichrist. So have I... I brought that word up, right? The Antichrist. So that brings us up to a lot of uh, apocalyptic talk, right? Everybody wonders, who's the Antichrist? What is the Antichrist? A lot of times when you talk about the book of Revelation, people right away think, we're going we're gonna to hear about the Antichrist. <laughs> we're going to, the Antichrist and the beast and, and talk like that, right? So what is the Antichrist? And, and who is the Antichrist? And where do we see it? Well, surprisingly, we don't see it at all in the book of Revelation. The word Antichrist is not found in the book of Revelation. It's not found anywhere in the Bible except the epistles of John. 1 John and 2 John is the only place we see the word. And I want us to look at every one of those tonight to show us again. What, does it do, what it does is it, it shows us and reiterates the fact that Satan himself and his system is Antichrist itself. It's, it's mimicking and mocking to deceive people away from Christ and drawing the attention to himself and denying anything about Christ, his deity, his sovereignty. Notice 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. That's an interesting verse. It's telling us again that this seemed to John to be a common thing throughout history, that Antichrists have already come and Antichrist is coming. 1 John 2, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 4, 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So a, a person, a system, a spirit who denies that Jesus has come from God, that is Antichrist which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. John said 2,000 years ago and already mentioned 2,000 years ago that many antichrists have already come. Those who deny God, his authority, his sovereignty, they deny his son and his authority and sovereignty. And then 2 John verse 7, the last account in the Bible of the word antichrist, he says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So that's what an antichrist is. That's what the antichrist is. One who denies Christ. One who denies Christ has come in the flesh. One who denies that the Christ who has come in the flesh is God in human flesh. 
The one who denies the sovereignty of Christ, the one who denies the power and the omnipotence of Christ, I mean, this is Antichrist. The one who therefore denies the very moral law of God, that's Antichrist. And so he's making war and has made war, as we see in Revelation, have, have seen up to this point, throughout history, constantly made war with the people of God, beginning all the way back in the Old Testament when the woman was given the promise that through Abraham's seed would come a child and he would be the Messiah. From that moment on, the dragon began to try his best to foil that plan, but of course to no avail because as Revelation chapter 12 tells us, the son was born, the child was born, but the dragon is angry. And so all through history, we continue to see Satan and his antichrists, demons, governments who are controlled by that system, basically the world that James talks about, that enmity, love of the world is enmity with God. All of that is an antichrist system or even a beastly system, if, if you will. So having said that, we see in Revelations 5 through 7, how this beast continues to operate against God's people, makes war with God's people, especially with the saints of God, that's us, God's people. Not just does he hate God and does he hate Christ, but he hates the saints of God, God's people. So look at verses five through seven. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. So we already saw in verse two, it said he has blasphemous words on, on, his, on his leg, just like Christ has the name of glory and a worthy name. So in mimicry of Christ, the beast has his own but blasphemous name and words. And now he's uttering them. And I think this is important. <laughs> and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And look at this. It was allowed to exercise authority. So again, what we're seeing even in this, even this, in this picture of Revelation, revealing to us the very enemies of God, Satan himself, the beast, the system of Antichrist, all of that is allowed by God for his purposes. That's where, we, that's where our minds kind of go boom, right? Like what? But that again is, the, it, it's, 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 it's just, it speaks to the sovereignty of God, the ultimate sovereignty of God. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is combating him that he doesn't already give authority to do so. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the ultimate sovereignty of God. It says it right here that this beast uttering blasphemies is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We're going to be talking about that 42 months. We, we've seen it several times already in the, in the last uh, 12 chapters. But again, what does that show us? It shows us that God is sovereign. He has a limit. <laughs> Satan has a limit. The Antichrist, this beast here who's blasphemous and he's uttering these words, he's allowed to do it, but only for so long, for 42 months. There's a cap, a sovereign cap put upon that time. But look what it says. It, the beast, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So this is a powerful passage of scripture that totally lays human ideology 
to the side. I mean, we, we think, okay, wait a minute now. This is not how I think it should be working. I don't think that, you know, if Satan's doing this, he's doing it on his own, and God's trying to stop him. That's usually the ideology or theology that most humans have, right? That Satan is powerful and God is powerful, and they're duking it out, and somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. We hope God wins, <laughs> But what we're seeing in the Bible is that's the farthest thing from the truth. There is no yin-yang going on here. There's no force like Star Wars where they're equal yet separate forces battling each other. That's not what the Bible shows us. The Bible shows us there is only one sovereign force in the universe, and it's God and the lesser power he created for his own purposes, and he controls for his own purposes. There is never a question as to the outcome of the battle of the universe. Now, there is a war raging. There is, there is, there is, the enemy is, he's blasphemous. He's, he's speaking against God. He's waging war, and he's conquering God's people, according to this. So that's happening, and it has happened all through history. We can't deny that. But that doesn't lessen God's authority. This is where the skeptics come in and say, well, if God was really all-powerful, there wouldn't be suffering in the world. You know, the, 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 the gotcha question from all the atheists. If God was really God and a loving God, then there would be no suffering. And yet this shows us, even though we don't understand and can't understand why God does things, the Bible doesn't even always try to go out of its way to explain to us why God does things. It simply presents a God that does things. Do you see my point there? The Bible's purpose is simply to reveal to us not excuses for God, but simply that God is and that God does. Does that make sense? That he does according to his will, and he doesn't have to ask our permission. And that grates against human nature. That goes against every fiber of a human being's body. To be humble. To realize there is somebody that is totally over me. I mean, think about this. What is the thing that we see in our, our, our whole culture right now? I'll tell you what we see. My wife works at a school. Maybe some of you others have worked at school and you know kids, period. Here's what we see. We see children who come to school on time. They, they sit down quietly. The teacher says, turn your phones in. They already had their phones turned in. They're not even trying to keep their phones. They listen to the teacher intently. They do their homework. When the teacher says something, they say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. That's what we see. Isn't that wonderful? You're all, some of you are like, like <laughs> you're saying, what are you talking about? Of course, that's not what we see. And we never really totally saw that, but we saw a little bit more of that a respect for authority, but what we see today is no respect, right? But that's always been the case at the very heart of man's heart because even when our kids were afraid because there was corporal punishment in the schools and they were at least fear-struck to obey, in their hearts, they didn't want to obey. They hated the idea to be told what to do, right? But now we're just seeing it played out even more and more in our days, this idea of I hate authority. So what I'm saying is this, this is the core of our being, folks, we do not want to obey our parents. We do not want to obey our teachers. We do not want to always obey our bosses. And we do not always want to obey the police officers. We, all, we want to get by with things because we have a rebellious heart. But ultimately, folks, we definitely do not want to obey God. 
And so when we read things like this, where the Bible makes it plain that at the end of time, all of us are going to give an account and God wins and we lose if we don't submit to him. That's another S word for most humans, submit. Submit, obey. Those are words against it. But anyway, the, I, I didn't mean to get on that tangent there, but this is, I think, what we see in, in, in Revelation. An unequivocal statement of God's sovereignty without excuse. And, and we're of our father, the devil, like Jesus said. We human beings are of our father, the devil, until we're born again and God becomes our father through Christ. What do I mean by that? Satan hates the authority of God. That's where it starts. He hated that God had the authority over him. And his pride and arrogance said, I deserve that. So this is what we're seeing here. This is the blasphemy he spews out. This is the hatred. And this is the hatred he has for the people who do obey God. So the blasphemous words, think about that. The, 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 the blasphemous words, what kind of words do we hear? We hear blasphemous words from government or leaders all the time. Gosh, the most recent I, I can remember is Mayor Cuomo of New York after the, the, the COVID uh, thing had kind of died down in, in, in their state, in their city. And, and he said, it wasn't God who did this. It wasn't your prayers that did this. It was us who did this. We did it. Yeah, that's blasphemy. Then you hear it back in the days of Rome, right? I mean, think about that. The, the, the emperors of Rome were all deified after death. That, that, that happened from the earliest emperors. They were deified. They were made gods after they died. They were declared gods. But then, as time went on, the emperors decided, why not get in on that worship while we're alive? <laughs> so they began to demand that they be worshipped while they were alive. And the worst among them was Domitian, who was the emperor during John's time, as he's writing the book of Revelation. This guy demanded that sacrifices be offered to him in Rome proper and required the worship of his image around all the empire or death. You had, to, you had to worship the images that were set up of Domitian or risk death. And this is why Christians were dying because they would not say that he is Lord. That was the names the emperors were using. Talk about blasphemy. They were saying that they were Lord of Lords and King of Kings. They used those titles for themselves. And when Christians said, no, there's only one Lord, Jesus is Lord. They were dying for that. So this fits right into what John's writing about. This is that system, this antichrist system that is rebelling against God and against his people. And if you do not bow down and worship the image, then you're going to be killed. You see, it goes farther back than just Rome, right? That last statement I made reminds us of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar and the golden image that he had set up. And he said, at the sound of the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, everybody needs to bow down and worship my image. And we know the story. There were three guys in town <laughs> that believed in Yahweh. And they stood when everybody else kneeled. They said, we're not going to bow down. And they were cast into the fiery furnace. Out of the hatred that king had for them. Of course, we saw the deliverance as well. But I'm just saying, it just goes to show us historically, this is what Revelation is talking about. This is that beastly system that has always raised up, these antichrists that have always 
wanted to devour God's people. Now, I want to also make a point here. Notice in that verse it said that he was given authority to make war with the saints for 42 months. 42 months. Again, that limit is placed there by our sovereign God. We see this repeated throughout Revelation. I want to just go back and remind us. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, we saw that the holy city will be given over to the nations to be trampled underfoot for 42 months. We said again that that holy city is the people of God. The the city of God represents the people of God there. And the enemy was given authority to trample underfoot the people of God for 42 months. Then we see in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, however, God's people continue to testify and witness for him. That's represented in the two witnesses. And they continue to testify of his grace and gospel for 1,260 days, which is 42 months or three and a half years. This is the timetable continually repeated. What is, one more, Revelation 12, we see the woman, the church, flees to the wilderness where she is nourished by God for 42 months. So again, what Revelation is showing us here is that God has a set time. He is not surprised by this. There's a set time where the enemy will rage. He will rage against God's people. Many of them will be martyred, but the whole time God will also be nourishing those, that remnant in this world that love him, and they will boldly continue to proclaim his name, and we will see more people saved, even in the midst of the enemy's attack, until the day God returns, Christ returns, and sets up his final kingdom. That's, that's revelation. Okay, 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 look, here, listen, here it is. We, we got to understand the church will be blasphemed against until Christ returns. That, that's my point here. And I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it well concerning this passage. But, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you remember, was a Christian in Germany during the time of Adolf Hitler, who actually was part of the resistance and the rebellion against Adolf Hitler, was in a plan to actually execute Adolf Hitler, was a believer, though, standing for Christ, ultimately killed by the Germans. But listen to this. Listen to what he said. The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the divisions which rend cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he lived that. Steve Wilmhurst put it like this. Whether it was Roman emperors, the Habsburgs during the Reformation years, Louis, or, or King, King Louis XIV, Stalin, Hitler, or Idi Amin, where there has been a faithful church which refuses to worship the beast, the beast makes war on them. And that is what Revelation is telling us here. This is really what this beast represents throughout all ages. The anger of the dragon against God's people. The war will rage all the way until the end when Christ, the Prince of Peace, finally returns and puts an end to it. 
In the meantime, it is kind of discouraging. (laughs) Look at verse 8. It says, all will worship this beast. Look what it says. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. And I think, again, we've got to understand this. The majority of people in our world, folks, the majority of human beings are not innocent, good people who just love God. The the, the Bible doesn't show us that picture. Now, we can talk about that as human beings together, and we can write our own books about ourselves and makes ourselves look pretty good. But if we look at what the Bible reveals, we see that broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that find it. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. That's what the Bible says. So again, the majority of people on earth, even if they're religious, they are not submitting to Christ as Lord. They're worshiping something else. They're worshiping the Antichrist, the one who appears like Christ, and yet is not the Christ. And that's what Revelation 13, 8 says. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Every, now here it is. Here's the exception. But everyone whose name, that is, who has, who, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's powerful. This is, again, a distinction is made. There are those on the earth who are worshiping the beast, worshiping the Antichrist, and everybody, the Bible says, on earth will do that. The only people who will not worship the Antichrist or the beast are those whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's why, what? And of course, we understand that description is a description of Christians, a true, genuine believer Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. There's our security, folks. Our security, again, is in the grace of God. I don't understand why the narrative works out this way. As I'm saying, we're reading God's holy word. Now, if you choose not to believe this is God's holy word, then you have all kinds of conjectures to make. But if we submit and say God has revealed himself in his word, and as we read this, this is where our hope springs from. That that God who made this whole universe has a plan for this whole universe and everything is working out according to his sovereign decree. And if we are in Christ, that's part of that decree. And we are, by his grace, written in this book and thereby separated from those who are under the wrath of God because they worship the beast. This This is the word of God. Now look at the rest of this. This is this gets powerful. Verse 9 through 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Don't don't you love that? I mean, this is where the angel stops and says, John, put this down. If anyone has the ears, let them hear this. Implying again, just like all of Jesus' parables, not everybody is going to understand this. Not everybody's going to be able to understand this. Not everybody's going to want to understand this. There are many people who hear preaching and they, they, they stop their ears. They, they don't want to hear it, much less can't understand it. But there are those who can. And as Jesus said, if you hear and understand, blessed are you. 
because that was given to you of my Father. That's grace. You know, they say many a Sunday here, man, if we're sitting here and we love Jesus and we have rested in the gospel, that is a miracle. That is a miracle that God has worked upon you by his grace. That's why Christians cannot be arrogant or haughty. The only thing we can be is humble before the God who saved us and say, Lord, why me? I don't deserve this, Father. You are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what we'll be doing all through eternity as brands, fiery brands plucked out of the fire. That's what we are just by God's grace. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, here it is. He's speaking to Christians now. Listen to this. This is huge. These last two verses of our passage, listen to this. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And here's what you're listening to. Here's what this whole passage has told us. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. (laughs) If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Now stop there, because that's, what kind of encouragement is this? So what we're hearing about is the fact that in the world there's an angry dragon who is hateful to all things to do with God. This beast, this system rises up in the world empowered by that dragon that does all it can to blaspheme God and his people and persecute them. And the encouragement that we get, this is going to happen, the Bible is saying, up to this point. This is what's happening now. And if you have an ear to hear, listen, church, he's saying, listen, believers, the whole world's going to worship this beast. The majority of people are going to worship this beast. And they're going to hate you. And you who have had the ears to hear, you're in the book of life. That's permanent. Your eternity is secure. But while you're in this world, suffering the persecution of that dragon, of that beast, and you're faithfully witnessing for me by the power I'm giving you to be bold in that world and love your neighbor enough to tell them about Christ. While you're doing that, if anyone is to be taken captive by those governmental agencies run by satanic forces, then to captivity you will go. Peter talks about this as well. So does Paul in Romans. Submitting ourselves to the authorities. God still has instituted these governments. And so it's not our job to revolt against every godless government and try to reform it. Our job is to obey the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in this world, obey the laws where we can, and then say, sorry, magistrate, I can't worship you as God. Sorry, I can't not speak the name of Christ, so I must go ahead and preach. Uh, Sorry, government. I mean, think about what we're seeing in our world with things like the Respect for Marriage Act that's about to be passed. And if it's passed unamended, then we might as well call it the Disrespect for God Act. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this Respect for Marriage Act is nothing more than a redefining of what God has instituted as holy, marriage being between a man and a woman, and calling it anything, man and man, woman and woman, everything that God has already said is an abomination to him. So my point is to call it a Respect 
for marriage act is in itself a blasphemous statement as it is written. But this is where we live, folks. And so for us to say as a church, because here's the point, if that passes unamended, there's an amendment that's going to protect the freedom of churches. If that gets in it, then for some time we'll be okay. But folks, we can never rely on law as Christians to protect us. We rely on God. Ultimately, we know based on Revelation that every nation hates God to the point of saying we will at one point or another destroy all that is holy. We don't want it. So we understand that at some point, if that thing is passed as is, what it's telling, telling us as a church is you have to marry gay couples. You, you, you can't turn them away. That's a hate crime and it's punishable by law. Imprisonment. One day, maybe by death. I'm, I'm just saying this is where the church throughout the history of this world has had to endure these things. To say to Caesar, we cannot abide by the godless laws. But we will respect the law in the sense that you say we broke it, then we will go to prison. But we'll do it for the glory of God. We will go and suffer for his sake. And then he goes on to say, if anyone is to be slain by the sword, he's to be slain by the sword. Wow. Same idea. If, death, if the death penalty for preaching Christ ever begins to be a thing in this world, in our country rather, I know it's in the world, what I'm talking about. We've got millions of brothers and sisters who've been killed for preaching Christ. But if that happens here, what Revelation is telling us is if you're sentenced to death for preaching Christ, then you're sentenced to death. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten is pretty much the old adage of the old Puritans, right? They said that's what we're here for. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. So if it happens sooner than later, fine. My name's written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, see, the, see how this plays together in Revelation? We get the truth of, of the world and the pain and the hurt and the sorrow and the suffering. We get the truth of the enemy who hates us, but we also get the encouragement of the God who is sovereign over us and the lamb who died to redeem us and the one who will forever rule and reign with us. You see that? And that gives us the ability to say, okay, to prison I go. Okay, to the guillotine I go. Okay, to the sword I go. Do you see, do you see that? And, and listen, if you think I'm just being dramatic, look at the last part of verse 10. It defines it all for us. What is he saying to us? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. <laughs> there it is. What is revelation? This man, I, today as I'm studying this, I just, I just was jumping around my office. I just said, this is the summary of the book of Revelation, verse 10 of Revelation 13. This is why the book of Revelation was written. Here it is. It's a call for the endurance and faith of Christians. Keep on keeping on. <laughs> Don't stop. Yes, the enemy hates you. Yes, it's tough. Yes, everyone will turn against you. Keep on keeping on. The victory is ultimately yours. They cannot take it away. Even in death, you win. To conclude tonight, anyway, <laughs> I want to actually go back to Daniel because we've already seen that these are parallel visions talking about the evil governments that will rise and will persecute, persecute the people of God. We've already seen in Revelation the glory of the Lamb. We've already seen as this cyclical picture keeps going around and around and, and it keeps repeating itself over and over again. The glory of the worship going on in heaven simultaneously as Christians are suffering on earth. 
And, and, and we've already seen, by the way, the seventh trumpet where the, the, the end of the world happens and God sets up his kingdom and he destroys the enemy and he gives us the glory of heaven forever. We've seen all that. But Daniel gives us that same picture. So I want to end with, with what finally happens to the beasts back there in Daniel. Verse 11 of chapter 7. Daniel says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So that's that last beast that had these fluent words and he kept speaking all this blasphemous stuff just like the beast in the book of Revelation. But look at this. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw, but here's the end of that time, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed this is our king this is christ preached in daniel and revelation this is the christian's hope this is why he says this is the call to the saints to endure by god's grace may we put our faith in the promises of god and trust his word let's pray father god we thank you for your word we thank you for your church this gathering tonight, this is the remnant. This is a picture. We are just human beings that you have created. We didn't bring ourselves into creation. Father, you made us. This is your world and your rules and your plan. So, Father, help us to humble ourselves before you. Thank you for the grace. We are amazed. We are awestruck that you opened our eyes by your spirit, gave us a love to love you with. Now, Father, we pray you could continue to encourage us, to nourish us in this wilderness, to give us the ability to be bold in the midst of persecution and to keep faithfully looking for the coming of our Savior and King. May we give him glory with our lives. In his name we pray.